In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Boss is here! Military parents never miss a beat, and neither does the Johns Hopkins U.S. Family Health Plan. Built for every warrior in your family. With more than 40 years of service to military families, TRICARE Prime Benefits plus exclusive extras. Learn more at warriorsathome.com. When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. This is a great pleasure, and I know that you wrote to me on Instagram, and we've connected over there, and now we're here and doing this interview. Now you're a cultural icon. You've been a star on stage, screen. You've had a record, which is also a hit, particularly uh, in in Australia and New Zealand uh, in the 80s, which I remember. And um, you've lived... An experience which is different, unusual, and I guess at times difficult and wonderful. So I'd really like to talk to you about your whole life and come to all those cultural aspects and and what has happened in your life. But I'm going to begin in the fishing port of Grimsby, uh, which is a um, I don't know. How do you look back on those early days of your life? Was that was that a difficult period? Well, I don't often look back on them. I always look, you know, because I don't often look back at Steve because, you know, obviously that's not the way I'm going. But um, in situations like this, um, Grimsby, well, I think Grimsby, uh, the name says it all, doesn't it? Grimsby, you know. So um, I suppose when the... uh, you know, the light bulb came on. I had to uh, follow the yellow brick road to, you know, bigger pastures, as they say. So um, I, I um, left Grimsby, um, I think I was 17, uh, 18, because I was in a kid's home um, from the ages of 13 to 17, nearly 18. And... Um, Grimsby, you know, in those days, I mean, the the thing is, you know, you get like um, 
LGBT, young LGBT people these days who obviously have all their own trials and tribulations. But I mean, the thing is, they, you know, they, they would have no concept of what uh, the mores of the times were like when I was a, uh, a child, a teen, you know, with multiple marginalizations, the color of my skin, my idiosyncratic behaviors, the sound of my voice. Um, was always constantly under attack of ridicule and uh, defamation and, uh, um, you know, uh, physical and ver verbal violence, you know, sometimes. So, um, you know, the, 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 the only thing to do was really to get out of this small town and just find somewhere... Um, a bit more um, liberal-minded and, uh, you know, tolerant, really, a bit more cosmopolitan. Um, I think, you know, looking back on things and the connections that I had and the, you know, friendships that I had there, and they weren't many, um, I, you know, and, and the behaviours that I, uh, atrocious, abysmal uh, treatment that I uh, had, um, I, I think that, um, you know, it was be, being a, an oversensitive child, if you like, kid, um, it was a lot to do with my, my own perceptions as well. When I think of certain people who were actually, you know, wanting to help me, wanting to, who were encouraging me to move, you know, as well, if that makes any sort of sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when... I mean, obviously, my story is different. But when I was young, and particularly a teenager, when I was sort of discovering my sexuality as a gay man, I I would find a pop star like David Bowie, who I identified with, because I wanted to leave my world of my parents and, you know, where I felt marginalised as well, and go into another world where I felt I could be happy. Was there anyone... Um, for you that you didn't necessarily know as a pop star or whatever, um, who you looked up to and thought, I want to be in that world. Oh yeah, loads. I mean, the thing is it, it you know, the, the, there was loads of people that gave me uh, a rescue from normality and banality and abnormality of what, you know, what was sold to me or purported to be, you know, normal behavior um, of, you know, the, the heterosexual dominant normative. Um, and um, if anything, you know, was to deter you from the heterosexual dominant normative was the heterosexual dominant normatives. But um, yes, there was loads of deranged people. I mean, you know, there was people like, oh, Mae West, you know, who, who for a long time, I used to think what was actually a drag you know, from the 30s, because I, I had um, one of my first landlords in Grimsby Town was somebody called Jimmy Slater, who was a drag queen um, in the 20s, 30s and 40s. And my mother used to say, oh, well, we all used to go down and see him um, on Cleethorpe's Beach, the, the Jimmy Slater Follies. And um, so, you know, he was very reminiscent of uh, Mae West, you know, and he was a friend of all these big old legendary 
uh, musical people like Sophie Tucker and uh, Florrie Ford and Friends of May West, you know, actually gave him some of their costumes um, because he used to, in his, he, he was like in his late 80s and 90s when he was my landlord. And um, so, you know, to continue his uh, showing off career, um, he used to have a um, fancy dress hire company which used to come from his garage up in Cleethorpes. So, um, but, you know, people like me, West, people like her, they hit good times and bum times. I've seen them all and my dear, I'm still here. So there was her and there was like Cleo Lane, you know, Fridays, not them of the Fridays. And there was, um, who else was there? Uh, Lena Horn, I want to sing something different. You know, and so there was all these amazing people. And then there were people like Janice Joplin and, uh, oh, um, just Frank Zappa, you know, people like that that gave me a rest. And, of course, I loved all the uh, going to school, you know, with the, um, as a, you know, uh, primary, uh, infant school Kid, I used to love going to school. School with the sound of the uh, the Mersey Beach, you know, Freddie and the Dreamers, Scylla Black, and you know the Beatles. Um, and seventies, my great inspirations. There was seventies music, you know, um, Sylvester Mighty Real, who actually became a friend, a bit of a friend in the eighties, um, you know, when I had a hit, uh, pissed in my pocket. And um, so there were a lot of um, influences, you know, and uh, which led me to other things, you know, which led me to people like Miriam McCaber and, uh, um, you know. What, what do you think being marginalised, um, and this sounds a strange question in a way, but I think sometimes you can derive strength from being pushed out being an outsider what do you think it may have given you in a positive term because you had to adapt because you had to um fight it you know you had to be yourself to fight it what do you think it gave you in in your life in that way well i think that um you know when you're um any it kind of makes you an innate loner as opposed to somebody that feels lonely you know there's a distinct difference there and I'm an innate loner I don't actually need to have people around me all the time to tell me that I exist and how special I am you know I've done a lot of uh, inner work I always say it's always an inside job so I think being an innate loner what what it did was made me uh, discover inner strengths um, that I never knew I had before. You know, when you when you have to bear the brunt of everything on your own for so long in your life, you, you do find these strengths that can't come from anywhere else other than from uh, within. So um, it just kind of makes you very, it makes you a very staunch individual, I think, in the end. And um, I often feel very sorry um, taking the judgment out of it for people that actually can't stand their own company, that actually can't stand being on their own. I've never had a partner to 
um, give me a break from myself or put the responsibility of who I am onto them. Um, and um, so um, I just think staunch individual, individual, an individual individualism and um and an ability to um analyze things a bit more because you're always asking why you know not so much you know it's like people it's not so much what they're doing but why they do it it's not so much what you did but why you did it why are you doing it why is this happening you know what is the uh psychology behind the behavior good or bad you know so Gives it has it all also sort of given you your drive in life to be successful and continue and to continually be creative has it given you that oh absolutely even you know even though you know um your attempts at moving moving forward uh have been thwarted a lot of the time, you know, because I I come through, you know, as I say, uh, the mores of certain times where it's like, um, you know, your only experience would, would be um, exclusion because you're not an archetype. You don't come with the correct social currency. You don't come with the correct cultural uh, um, uh, uh, currency. So, um, you know, you, you have to deal with a lot of, um, I think, added uh, rejection and doors being slammed in your face and ostracism, flack, ridicule. But, you know, you, you have to stay on the, the treadmill. You know, I always say, uh, you know, give in, give out, but don't give up. You just you know, that, the, sorry. That, sorry, that's always sort of, that's been my motto for quite a long time, really. Now, you mentioned that at 17 or 18 that you you, you left um, and you went to Manchester. Yeah. Was um, was Manchester, this, sound, this also sounds a bit weird to say this, but was Manchester sort of some promised land or was there pockets within Manchester that you could find and exist in a way that you wanted to exist well the thing is uh steve i was free you know i was out of the kids home um and i was free you know so um i found a bed sit through the help of an organization at the time called shay um campaign for homosexual equality um so um i don't ever think that i felt uh you know, uh, homos homosexual, but I suppose, you know, because there was always this great misalignment between my mind and my body, you know, which was always sort of like female chemistry going on in the neuroplasticity, uh, which created this misalignment with the body. But, you know, at the time, um, for all intents and purposes, and, you know, for, for, for reality checks, um, I was a young, uh, non-white uh, gay boy, you know. So, um, you know, there's still a bit of that in me. Um, well, there was the other night. And, um, but, um, but the thing is, well, this way to the grotto, I know Christmas is over. Um, but, um, oh, there's always a star on the top of my tree, Steve. And, um, but... Um, uh, yes, so, so 
but you know, at least like there, you know, there were some brilliant people that had set up this um, organization that could help you and mentor you a bit. So, um, yes, so um, Manchester was the big metro uh, metropolitan uh, city for me. And it was, um, you know, uh, certainly um, an, an adventure that I look forward to. And of course, when I got into Manchester and started meeting people and going to clubs and things, you know, I met, um, you know, uh, a, a drag queen there, Bunny Lewis, very famous uh, drag queen and uh, received the Royal Variety Club of Great Britain Award from Danny LaRue um, in 76, 77, I think it was. And he became my agent. And I started uh, drag disco DJing and performing, um, you know, around all the the big working men's social clubs. And I mean, there, there was quite um, a proliferation and, uh, you know, uh, what should I say, wide circuit where you could work, work in men's clubs uh, three, four nights a week and, you know, pay your rent and keep a roof over your head and everything. And I shortly became known as the Shirley Bassey of the North. I mean, I'm not a massive Shirley Bassey fan, but, you know, I used to, I will love you as I love you you know, so I used to, uh, I became known as the Shirley Bassey of the North. And um, I ended up working uh, from the rough, brutal working men's clubs to like their, their posh versions of the London talk of the town, like the Golden Garter, Fagin's, the Long Bar, the talk of the North, you know, and I'd be, find myself on the same bill, you know, like as the Nolan. You know, or as the three degrees were on there. Incidentally, Sheila of the three, three degrees um, did the additional uh, vocals on Pistol in My Pocket um, in the in the uh, eight bar where she says, oh, was that a pistol in your pocket? A, a pistol in your pocket. That's not actually me on the original. That's Sheila Ferguson of the three degrees. So, Sheila, when will I see you again? <laughs> Oh, I'll come to that a bit later. Just talking about the working men clubs, the ones, I mean, they were, uh, the ones that you mentioned at first, they were notoriously tough. Um, and, you know, if you hear interviews with uh, comedians or other performers, they would always talk about how tough they were. Yeah. How tough were they with you uh, because of your identity because of who you were as opposed to you as a performer well um it was more um well it depended very much where you were booked in I think I was booked into some quite dodgy and dangerous places um but I'd always had an iron fist behind the limp wrist you know when you come from Grimsby you know um you have to know how to look after yourself um, and my dad was a boxer and I do a bit of boxing. Um, but not that you pride yourself on uh, being violent. You must, But I think that you must always be prepared to come to your own physical self-defence. But, you know, the thing is, I, always, I was always a black belt in mouth, put it like that. So if somebody started, you know, it was like a machine gun that went off. And, of course, that 
absolutely nullified the rest of the crowd. But, you know, people people like Shirley Bass, you know, the kids. So I got respect for, from that. But um, I worked Bernard Manning's club for him uh, one Sunday night. I always remember uh, he wanted the Shirley of the North. Now, he, he was as polite as anything to me in the dressing room. But his language and attitude soon changed when he introduced me. I've got this fucking in a frock, he said, you know, and actually use that word, you know, um, thinks it's fucking hairy bassa, you know, and so I thought, oh God, you know, I've got to go on and enter. Uh, thank you for warming them up for me, Bernard. And I went on. Um, the crowd was uh, appreciate, you know, appreciative, um, luckily, but you know, as Dame Shirley Bass, I said, well, I have to thank her. Uh, Bernard for inviting me uh, to the stage this evening. I mean, you know, uh, when they want to clean the Mersey Tunnel out, they pull that fat bastard through and he doesn't have elastic in his knickers anymore. It's fucking swish rail. Now, let me sing another song, you know. So I, I just gave back as much as I got, really, you know. I always felt that um, uh, performance, drag performers who stand up against... Uh, up to a crowd and and have to do this very you know tough performance of you've done we're at the forefront of lgbtq rights because there you are in a in a working man's club in a very heterosexual working class environment mm -hmm. and this is probably their own their only connection of to someone from the lgbtq community so in a way i've always felt that that role was one of the sort of fundamental roles in change. How how much do you see, see that as a, an important role in your life? Well, yes. I mean, the thing is, I think it was my type, my kind, if you like, um, the the non the gender nonconformists, um, those who consider themselves to be men in frocks, you know, drag queens, um, that. Um, had to tread where angels feared to tread, really. Um, but, you know, I mean, the thing is, it was all about uh, doing your craft and, um, you know, it, 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 that educated and enlightened people, that was uh, an added bonus, you know. But um, I soon discovered, though, you know, even at an early age, that, um, you know, it wasn't just those of us that they accuse of being the dupes of our own existence, that were the dupes of their own existence. I mean, we were in good company with the cis heterodominant normative or usuality. So I discovered that a long time that, you know, uh, straight men like tranny fanny, you know. <laughs> and um, so there was a, a, a lot of the, the onion was being peeled and the curtain pulled back on a lot of things, you know, which probably would account for my jadedness at this stage in life. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, tell me about this jadedness, because I always feel like, you know, people of our generation fought uh, for rights during a period when it was very difficult. Do you know what I mean? People always talk about the 80s as being this sort of wonderful music era, which it was, but it was, you know, it was... Homophobia, um, homophobia, there was sexism, racism, misogyny, there was everything 
during that period as well. In the 70s, you were almost a serial killer to be different. Okay. Do you know what I mean? It was even worse. So, and we had to go through that period. And today it's much easier, but there seems to be a lack of respect for um, the people that went before and had to open things up. Do you feel that? Well, let's face it. It was our generation and generations before us that fought for all these kings and queens to wear their crowns with pride today. And I often feel, you know, I don't want to get into being an old, uh, resentful tranmar. But, um, you know, I often feel like um, we're dealing with a bunch of spoiled brat teenagers on many levels who are taking a lot of our fight for their gains for granted, you know, and um, that makes me incredibly resentful in moments of uh, pensiveness. Um, you know, to think, I, I think sometimes, God, I wish I hadn't have gone out there for them. You know, I really do feel like that. And then I'm inspired by meeting young people who know exactly who I am, who know, who have seen, you know, the doc documentary uh, Beyond, There's Always a Black Issue, Dear. There's another documentary coming out called The Legendary People, which I'm featured in, a new documentary that has been made by uh, Rob Faulkner, uh, film and docu documentary maker. And um, so that should be, you know, coming to all kinds of screens and festivals soon. Um, but I do, you know, I, I am inspired and uplifted when, you know, you get a, a younger uh, millennial or Gen Z generation you know, coming up, knowing exactly what your, um, if you like, legacy uh, has, is. And, you know, they're fighting, you know, they're fighting this rotten government. Um, they're fighting for the rights, you know, and they have the right level of insight and empathy, you know. So that's quite... So yeah. it was in Manchester that you met Marky Smith, yeah. Can you tell me about that meeting and what it led to? Well, I was working in a French shop. It was called the, the Black Market, just to be controversial and, you know, to keep the customers coming in. And it was in Levenshume, Manchester, on Levenshume uh, Road there. And um, it was one of the first sort of antique-type clothes shops and, you know, antique bric-a-bracs and sold a bit of furniture and stuff that um, became a cafe as well. Now it's a, it's a proper restaurant in Levesume. I think it's still there. But anyway, I was work, working there at the age of 18. And um, this um, guy came in called Steve and he had a band called The Odd and uh, they were very sort of, avant-garde, punky, uh, improvisational, and they wanted a vocalist, uh, you know, who could make up words and, um, you know, to sort of front some of their their gigs, you know. Well, I did my first gig with, with them at uh, the uh, Russell Club in Moss Side, which was a 
reggae club, you know, it's full of Rastas um, uh, in uh, Moss Side. So, um, and uh, they were actually supporting the fall. So I met Marky Smith at 18, he was 19, um, and Kay Carroll, his girlfriend and manager at the time. And uh, we, we all just became really, really good friends um, because I don't think they, you know, had a friend like me. Uh. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. With my idiosyncratics and all that before, and they thought that I'd done a really good performance, and Mark was saying, oh, you should come and, you know, you come and uh, introduce the farm, you know, love. Uh, all right, can't. And um, so I started introducing the, you know, the fall and at uh, gigs, uh, university gigs and what, polytechnic gigs. And uh, then I got roped into doing stuff in some of their videos. And... Um, speaking words and what have you, uh, you know. I mean, I could never make out what Mark's words were, you know. I mean, his, his writing to me was very individual, very individualistic in its obtuseness, really. Um, but um, anyway, I enjoyed it because it was all show business and spotlights, so I, I enjoyed it. But weren't you actually also in a band that supported Oh, yes, I, I, got, I got a band together in the end called uh, the Ice Cream Pleasures as opposed to Ice Cream. So it was Ice Cream Pleasures. And um, I supported The Fall and did various gigs with that. And actually, that's really what I'm going to go back to um, artistically, art-wise. So tell me about the, the music that you would perform and about the performance then of, of this band. Oh, of the ice cream pleasures. Well, I used to I, I write used to write songs, and they were recorded by On You Sound System with uh, uh, Adrian Sherwood later on. But I used to have a song called "I Refuse to Be a Classic Queen." Don't want no obscure scene, so you liars can go dream about how clean I am. You machines with rusty gears. You've been conditioned with lies and fears. You live your lives in a lucky bag, you rag hags. I never give you a chance to be my fag hags, you rag hags. You know, so that was probably the only 
very endearing, isn't it? <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, there was a song called uh, Spirit Souls, you know, we're not these bodies, we're spirit souls never dying, always flying, spirit souls, which is what I believe we are. And uh, another one, which is about this uh, day and age, so I was a bit of a, um, a Nostradamus, um, and it, that was called Demonic Horses in the Air, Demonic Horses Everywhere, Demonic... So, you know, that's about... Uh, that was about how uh, we're ruled by, you know, uh, despot governments. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Were you yeah. coming down to London at that time as well? Were you actually going, you know... Coming- I mean, I presume yeah. you hadn't moved down to London by then, but you were coming down to London and visiting and getting to know people there. Yeah, I mean, I, I did um, a, a gig, you know, I did gigs at the old Dean Walls music uh, place in Camden. I did uh, gigs at the, um, oh, what, do, what was the club, the famous club on Wardour Street? Um, uh, 100 Club? The 100 Club? No. That's no, that, that's on Ox, Oxford Street. Right. Famous club on, on Wardour okay. Street, I'll remember in a minute. And, um, you know, uh, Richard Branson's venue in Victoria. And um, so I did, you know, places like that. And then um, my friend Richard, uh, um, Jimmy Gardner, who is the husband of... Um, Neil Bartlett, who's, who's got a play on at the moment in the West End, um, he had a boyfriend called, uh, Jimmy had a boyfriend called uh, Trevor, who was a Harry Krishna, ex-Harry Krishna devotee, which, of course, I got into a bit with my old mate, Polly Styrene, uh, when I moved down to London to, to the squad. So they brought me down to London. They were very reluctant to leave me at this squad in Clapton Pond, um, which was a run-down council block. Um, but it was surrounded by uh, the National Front. And the National Front, one night, uh, decided to run us out of um, our squad, our home, uh, with Molikov cocktails. So uh, I rushed to another squad in Powers Square uh, during the Notting Hill Gate riots of uh, 81 into what was apparently Graham Greene, the novelist's uh, old house, um, and stayed there for, you know, maybe a year and a half. And that's when I met, um, you know, Polly uh, Styrene. I mean, I was searching for, I've always been, uh, on a search for deeper identity, you know, I think it's a good thing, which brought me to Krishna consciousness at the time and uh, connected me with one of my good friends at the time, Polly Styrie. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Earn great pay with outstanding federal benefits and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. Learn more online at cbp.gov careers usbp who uh, became, uh, what was his name, Maria Vrishni, or whatever uh, 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 Harry Krishna name was. Um, anyway, she stayed 
so there's me living in this squad amongst the riot and Polly uh, living in this really nice <laughs> riverside uh, loft, you know, uh, a, apartment on the in Rotherhide. Um, so, uh, but Polly stayed with the Krishna consciousness. I mean, you know, she'd found her bliss in that, whereas I just, for me, it was just a revelation. Oh, well, religion is just an old boys club in it. And I don't want to be surrounded by barra boys in doherty's pretending that they've got a hotline to sky god you know so, so I, she stayed and i went to las vegas <laughs> so when did you meet lee lee bowery then because uh, lee bowery was in london from about 81 i think something like that 81 82 that's right and i was probably one of the first people that would later on become a friend of his um, one of the first people he'd ever met in London. And so um, so I went to see this friend of mine, Trevor, who was the boyfriend of Jimmy Gardner, who brought me down to London to the squad. And um, anyway, so um, Trevor uh, was this ex-Harry Krishna devotee. He was uh, turned into a bit of a slag, really, because he was, you know, forever at it. And... Um, so, uh, and I thought I'd flatten some grass in my time. But um, anyway, so um, I went and had lunch with him one day. And when we'd finished lunch, um, I was left, came down the stairs, and there was this big, um, what I could only describe as like a big sort of hairdresser type. You know, I know that's very... <laughs> very stereotyping but it was like bleach blonde hair I was said that much bleach on his head it's pickled his brain but uh, bleach blonde hair with these puffy black puffy sleeve sort of blousey thing on and these nice fitting slacks these lovely blue eyes this round face and it looked quite sort of a lot you know had a fair amount of adipose tissue on the body but anyway he was there with these cases and what seemed like a hundred black bin liner bags taking it up to this room, you know, this bedsit room. So he'd obviously just arrived from in from Australia. So I said, oh, do you need any help, love? And he said, oh, yes, please, you know, in this Australian voice. And then that was my first encounter with Lee Barry, not knowing what the future connection or the future form of Lee Bowery would be, you know, <laughs> would become. So how did it come to that he would um, design clothes for you? How did that relationship develop and how did it come to that point? Uh, well, yeah, well, you know, I became somewhat of a muse for him later on, but um, I um, started in the comic strip. Uh, the comic strip came about when uh, uh, Keith Allen, Lily Allen's dad. I used to hold Lily Allen as a baby. Um, I was on the swings in Powys Square uh, one afternoon and Keith Allen came over. I had no notion who Keith Allen was. He was living next door but one to me in a flat. I was in a squad. He was in a flat uh, sharing with this other, with this uh, Ian, I think, this other guy. And um, anyway, he came over, sat on the swings next to me. And the picture is 
I've got shaved hair. It is bleached blonde. It has a pink triangle on one side and a blue triangle on the other side. And it was ribbed, trimmed, framed in a green, you know. I had a Dusty Springfield type pink sequin 60s top on. Uh, luminous green uh, lycris uh, slacks and Sylvester jellyfish sandals on and I'm on the swings there. So he came, comes over, obviously very inquisitive, starts chatting to me, says he's is, um, got his own show coming on the new Channel 4, would I like to be in it? So yes, please. Um, anyway, so... Um, Basically, that's how it came about. And it's through that we did these embryonic episodes of something called uh, The Bullshit, as subtitled Roll Out the Barrel. Um, so I did a couple of those on Channel 4. I'd met Peter Richardson of the uh, comic strip presents. He, he was the producer and the writer of the group. And he said, oh, I'd like you to... I was in a bedsit by this time in Primrose Hill, £6.50 a week. And um, they, uh, so he said, um, uh, would I like to be in the comics strip, you know, and I could help write my own lines and scenarios. And that's how that came about. So Peter became a bit of a Svengali. So it was through that that Lee started noticing me because I was like the only sort of unapologetic outre type on the screen it seemed at that time I mean you, you know you had like your white camp people like John Inman and your Danny LaRue's and your Larry Grayson's but I was like a new sort of breed you know camp with a brown face you know and um, so everybody was zooming in on me but you know Lee got in touch and said oh I'd like to make some clothes and you know so Yes, yeah, so I went over to, to his tower, Hamlet's flat, with his famous um, Star Trek wallpaper on. And we just became friends. And, you know, it was like every Sunday I'd end up there in the afternoon and Lee and I would just talk. He was very edifying and we'd just have loads of cheese and cress sandwiches on hovis and pots and pots of Earl Grey tea. And he'd teach me a bit of piano and measure me for this outfit and I actually have um Lee Bowery originals that nobody's known that he's made me but um they are going to be going on um into an exhibition and I think the exhibition goes on tour um it, it, it's uh, organized by Martin Green of Soho Radio and um so one of the costumes that Lee made for me will be lent to go into the uh, exhibition I mean, he was a fascinating um, character because he was, I always thought he was, he, I mean, he was a very intelligent person. Um, he was creatively, you know, uh, very skilled. Um, but he had this, <laughs> he had this wit and he had, he used to, he used to love sort of slagging people off a little bit, which was always very entertaining with Lee because you always knew you'd be the butt of a joke somewhere as well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, oh, yeah. It was a hunt, and um, to pronounce it, you know, I mean, he was a right 
little shit stirrer when he you know, wanted to be. And, um, you know, and he used to try and coercively control, never with me, because he knew that he'd get a knuckle butty. But um, he was, um, no, you know, he, 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 he did use to, to stare it. And also, you know, if you left your handbag in the room, it'd pilfer through it see what you've got in there and um you know and um, and i i always used to get him back i mean i never ever sent him a christmas card or a birthday card it was always a get well soon card <laughs> and also uh, because of his pilfering what i do at times is take an item of his behind his back and on his birthday i would wrap it up and give it to him you know, so he knew. So I'd give him his own prop. So if it was a pair of socks out of his drawer, I'd wrap them up nicely on his birthday or Christmas and go, there's a little present for you. Thank you for being a friend. And you'd be like, but these are mine. My... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a brilliant thing to do. But, but no, he, he was very edifying, very, very well read um, to the point where he sort of could pontificate and you know, be a bit sort of arrogant about it. You just have to tell him to, you know, put a sock in his tyranny of thought, you know, so. So tell me about Pistol in My Pocket. How did how did that come about? Uh, well, um, I met um, Pete Burns, who became a friend. Uh, well, you was always more of a friend to Pete than he was for you because Pete was only available when he wanted, you know, he made himself available or to put it very bluntly when he wanted something. Um, but he was, Pete was incredibly generous, generous spirit. You know, he would give the, the shirt off his own back, you know, if he could help somebody in that moment. Um, and, uh, you know, a mentalist, um, he had a great capacity for retention of information or anything he'd read, whereas, like, my mind is just, you know, a fleshy sieve, you know, it just... Although I do remember lines when I'm doing a play, I remember my lines and almost everybody else's, you know, so that's uh, a consolation. But um, I met Pete with Jane County. Jane County came to stay with me in uh, 8384 and um, I was living in a studio flat on Hampstead Road so there wasn't very much room but Jane would have been another one uh, homeless had I not been able to provide something for us so she said oh it will, well it's only going to be a week um, it stayed it was like about five weeks in the end <laughs> and um, but you know she was a great guest uh, Jane and um, we were just in Soho one day she said oh Pete's uh, recording in um, studio in Soho I forget what the name is and um, anyway so we went um, I was introduced to Pete and Lynn and Steve Coy and um, you know Pete said oh you, you'd, be, you'd be good as a singer you know so I said yeah well I do do a bit of that and um, what happened? I just sort of got inspired. I thought, I don't, you know, I'm not Pete Burns. You know, for a start, I'm 
you know, more alive than dead. And um, also, you know, it's like all the impersonations I, as I did. I never wanted to be these people, but I wanted to be somebody like them, you know, stand on my own star celebrity status, if you like. So, um, anyway, I just thought, oh, I'm just going to ring Pete Waterman. I'll ring the Vineyard Studios. They'll know me from the comic strip. I want to hit, you know, not I want to record, but I want to hit. So he said, oh, yeah, come come round, uh, Alana. We'll, we'll, you know, have a chat about it. So I went and met Pete Waterman, and it was quite a funny encounter. And um, he said, have you got any ideas? I said, oh, yeah, I've written this song, Pete. Um, should I sing it to you a cappella? Yeah, go on then. So I sang this song. Um, surrender your gender. Agenda. Surrender your gender. Agenda. Bender. Well, Pete sort of like, literally like this. And then just cracked up, pissed himself laughing, and fell on the floor almost like this, laughing. And I just sat there, I thought, how rude. And so he said, well, to be honest with you, Lana, I don't think that's going to get Radio Radio One airplay. So let's give it a week and we'll come up with something. So he got Morrison and Washburn to write the song Pistol in My Pocket. And probably about two weeks from our meeting, I went and recorded it in sections uh, in the studio. And that's how that transpired, you know. Um, and then they wrote, um, I Can Make a Man Out of You as a follow-up, uh, which I wasn't too really keen on because there was a really good song there called something about um, love all over the world. You know, I thought, no, I need to be, you know, the new, um, what, what's the... Brotherhood of Man, um, the the New Seekers. I needed to be, you know, Lynn from the New Seekers. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, so I was forced to. I can make a, you know, record. I can make a man out of you. And of course, you know, it wasn't the best um, follow up, really. Yeah, and I was very fractious in those days with people. You know, I felt like I was. You know, my head was in a vice, you know, um, society uh, wasn't accepting, you know, you everywhere I went, um, you know, you were being pointed at and, you know. Met, how, how come Pistol in My Pocket became a hit in Australia, though? That's that's something that, because it, you know, became very big in Australia. Um, so well, how, how did that come about? Well, how, how it came about was... Um, uh, it, it Mushroom Liberation Records in Australia. Um, uh, John, uh, what's his name? John Jonathan Coleman. Do you remember Jonathan Coleman? Had mm -hmm. a, a big radio show there. And he liked it and started promoting it. So really, it was down to Jonathan's um, liking of it um, that um, you didn't Maybe. And Molly Meldrum, I presume, because Molly yeah, was, yeah, I mean, yeah. I knew Molly. Molly was a really big figure in Australia yeah, in terms of and, music. And it came to Molly's attention. And, of course, um, you know, started entering the charts. And I think it went to, it went top ten in Australia. 
So did you go to Australia to promote it? No, I didn't. I mean, the, the, um, I mean it kept, became very big, but messages that I got from there, you know, and I don't have a woe is me. I don't have a, 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 an ounce of self-pity in my body, you know, because I've thrown as much, flung as mu much mud back. Um, but, um, you know, there, there was like, it was like when Eat the Rich came out, there was death threats. Um, but the police told me to stop sending those. Uh, but um, there was, um, the, you know, uh, there were death threats. There was, you know, racist sort of hate uh, males, you know. And, um, and it was the same like in Australia, really. So I was dissuaded really not to go. You know, I just thought, well, don't go anywhere if you're not welcomed, you know. And it, it's such a shame because of... Um, you know, the fan, fans. So I suppose it was a case of, you know, being defeated by the haters, really. But, you know, but of course, you know, if somebody wants to pay for me first class to go there tomorrow, I'll go. Did you get disparaged by hate and jealousy and the negativity that obviously surrounded you when you started, you know, when you became successful? You know, Eat the Rich was was a period of, of being successful. This record, Pistol in My Pocket, was also um, a success. So what, did you get disparaged by the reaction, by the racism, by the, you know, the the hate, the pure hate that was coming out? Uh, well, yeah, and I suppose that was due to my oversensitivity. But, but you know, I think what you do with, um, you know, shit is that you turn it into manure don't you in the end so um so yeah so i mean the thing is when you've had so much of it i mean it's it's like anything you know you can go two ways you can go down or you can go up so i chose to you know use it as fertilizer really you know become more you know it's like that the, the psychopaths um were my best gurus really you know they they their their actions you know become your best defense in the end you know and certainly an opening into the uh the the minds of of certain humans so yeah did you have an affair with freddie mercury well, it was very, very fleeting, and that's going to be the very fleeting answer. Okay. Um, as I sort of mentioned earlier, that, you know, I was I was in London during the 80s, and I found um, the homophobia and all the other things that went with it, sexism, racism, misogyny, um, very uh, a very difficult time. And on top of that, uh, being part of the gay community... Um, AIDS and the effects of what happened with AIDS were so prevalent and that friends would sort of disappear and then you'll find out six months later that they died. You know, you'd go to a club and you knew certain people to say hello to and then suddenly they weren't there and then a few months later you'd find out um, that they died. And one club I used to go to in, um, oh my God, it's between Manor House and Turnpike Green, Bolts, Lasers. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I went there regularly between, I think it was 82 and 94. Then in 91, I did an interview in the club and the owner was there and I asked him why he shut the club. And he said to me, 
everyone died. Mm. And it was one of the most shocking moments, although I'd experienced, you know, the death of people around me, it was one of the most shocking moments for me to realize that whole little pockets of a community would die. Um, How for you was it to live through that period in the 80s, I mean, Lee died later um, of uh, AIDS-related illness. Um, how was it for you to live through that period and have this going on around you? Well, you know, apart from being, you know, uh, vilified and accused of being a spreader, you know, uh, even though I don't have AIDS, um, you know, just for being camp and, you, you know, a beacon, really. Um, it was a horrible time. I mean, the thing is, it, it was trouble in paradise because, as you say, you know, you turn up to, say, like, gay Monday nights at um, the Hippodrome when Peter Stringfellow had it. Um, you'd, you'd find that um, paradise was becoming empty because you'd ask, for example, oh, well, where's... Um, Ben, Benjamin, I've not seen him for a few weeks. Oh, well, Benjamin died, you know, like this new, you know, this disease, this AIDS, you know. Oh, well, that's, you know, really knocked you back and impacted your evening a bit. And then another three people that you hadn't seen, you know, for a few weeks. Oh, well, they're, they're in hospital because they've got that AIDS, you know. And it was that sort of thing. So... You know, um, it was very, you know, sad, traumatising time. And also, you know, I mean, going on the gay scene as well, that, you know, it wasn't always, you know, it wasn't the place where you could go a lot of the time and, and feel like embraced and encouraged and loved and supported. It was often the place where you met the most hostility, you know, as well. Um, why? Tell me the, why, in what form? Well, because, you know, I mean, I, I think that, that uh, well, I don't think that there was um, an awful lot of self-loathing, you know, self-hatred, you know, and people who hadn't grabbed the ball by the horns and, and done the inner work. So, you know, it's like through their marginalization or and perceived oppression they were using others as a punch back for their own neurosis you know um and uh you know drag queens and trans people um as they are to a great degree today uh being used as a punch back for other people's neurosis so you know um i know that things have changed quite a bit but i you know there's an awful lot of work uh, to be done, but um, no, um, the eighties were during the AIDS uh, pandemic or epidemic. Um, it was a very bittersweet time. It was a very bittersweet time to be yourself, you know, as somebody who was fr- fighting to be enough after being brought up uh, and told that you're not enough having this um you know inadequacy instilled in you and then you go to 
uh, oh, well, you know, I found my tribe, the gay, the LGBT tribe, and it's there that you meet a lot of hostility as well. So that that it's it's such a sad scenario, I think, all round, and especially then, you know. But, you know, there were some great things that were like, things like the poor chest of balls, you know, where like all the old drag and all the old camp, you know, queens and that used to go and uh, purchasable uh, halls in um, Bayswater. They were great things. You know, we had a night of a thousand frocks at the Hippodrome in the 80s, hosted by uh, Bailey and Raquel Welch, you know, came uh, one uh, Monday night. And, you know, or he, you know, there was a live zoo on the stage where the lion escaped off the stage, so everybody was screaming. And then the alligator wouldn't perform, you know. And uh, so there was some, you know, great things. And I loved, I, you know, there was they. If you lived a, your life on a piece of black twelve-inch vinyl, which us kids used to do in the eighties, and as club kids, you know, dressing up, um, you know, you, you'd be invited out seven nights a week to things at sometimes and you'd always take a you know a suitcase and Tupperware so that you could nick some of the um you know the buffet so you had something in to eat in the week. You know, it was was some fantastic things that happened. But there was a an underlying um you know sort of hostile culture as well. You know, I mean I you know I don't see life as a competition. You know, and unfortunately, whether you're LGBTQ or cis and hetero, you know, some people think that that's what life's about. And I just don't think it it does you a good service, really. Where are you in your life today? What are the what are the perspectives for you today? Because obviously you've been busy all the way through. You've had a lot, a lot of um, theatre work. You've you know, being on stage and so on and so forth. And I just wonder whether the same perspectives are there for you today and what your vision is of your own future. Well, you know, my, my future really is just to stay healthy in this tumultuous, uh, chaotic world, which I, you know, um, I mean, I, I, I try to live with an attitude of positive expectancy. Um, I who'd have, who'd have thought, you know, like in the eighties, that we actually come to such an unempathetic paradigm. But I'm I'm seeing that paradigm shift, you know, and I think that things will get better because you have like whole new generations that are being reminded of what socialism and empathy um, is meant to. You know how it's meant to be you know and they they're seeing everything being stolen from them you know ripped away from them you know i mean i'm sorry but i don't think it is entitlement to expect to have a roof over your head from cradle to grave healthcare from cradle to grave a safety net when required from cradle to grave i don't see why uh, a greedy one percent that serve mammon, money, and not humanity, should have it all. And all I see from the top 
is lie after lie after lie, self-servative, being the operative, you know, and this lot, you know, I mean, this isn't even a government. This is a Nazi regime. You know, it's a smash and grab raid. And when they're telling you that, you see, the thing is, if, if it serves rich people, then that's a good thing. But if it serves poor people, then we can't afford it. It's a lie. You're being to told lies time after time after time in order to affect the frontal cortex um, so that you start accepting the scarcity and the massive lies that they're telling you. Uh, you know, you told a lie and untruth enough and you start believing it, but people aren't having it now. You know, 13 years of this rotten Tory government you know, who promised that they'd fix this, fix that. You remember the £350 million on the side of the buses. And if we're, you know, they can't even tell us one good thing that's come out of Brexit. And if this £350 million uh, a week um, was, was to save our NHS, how come that they're decimating our NHS when you've got nurses using food banks? for a start, you know, uh, when you've got uh, thousands, you know, nearly half a million children in this country with no shoes on the feet, no breakfast in the stomach, you know, starving, you know, how, how, how can that, their ideology being a good thing? If you vote Tory, if you vote for this scum at the top, then you vote for your own limitations and your own oppression and the limitations and the oppression of everybody else, you know. And if you, you think the sun shines out of their eyes, then shame on you because you are not awakened. You're not woke. And also you notice that they use woke as a slur in the same way that they subverted the 3,000-year-old uh, symbol of good fortune, a uh, Buddhist symbol of good fortune, good luck, empathy, how the Nazis subverted that into something horrific. And that's what they've done with woke. They won't mention what the origins of the word and the, the, the ideology of woke meant. It meant to be away and to fight against the injustices of all people, not just black people. It started in the 40s in America. It was revived in the, the 60s civil rights uh, uh, fights in America. Woke means empathy, justice for all, not, you know, people like being, uh, you know, just dressing up and calling them, you know, making up myriad genders because they're primal screaming for attention you know oh the left you woke you know so you know people just need to wake up really and stop being bamboozled by uh you know greedy bastards well Lana, it's been wonderful to speak to you i mean you really oh. have had a fascinating <laughs> life and a fascinating journey to this point i look forward to the day that you create music and go back on stage and 
perform again. Oh, thank you. Really appreciate it. And all the best with everything. Okay. Speak to you again. Bye. Bye bye. Take care. Bye, everyone. Selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... As easy as pie? Sure. All you have to do is enter your license plate or VIN. As easy as a stroll in the park. Okay. Then just answer a few questions and you'll get a real offer in seconds. As easy as singing. Why not? Schedule a pickup or drop-off and Carvana will pay you that amount right on the spot. As easy as playing guitar. Actually, I find that kind of difficult. But selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... Can be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get an instant offer today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.